I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Welcome back for another episode, folks. Very excited. We are going into our summer break. Kids are out of school. Birds are singing. We're getting uh, we're getting plenty of good rain and, and sunshine. And um, I don't know what's doing better right now, my vegetable garden or the weeds in it. Um, but uh, summer's, summer's great, and uh, we're not slowing down uh, this summer on Faith and Politics. Really excited to be joined today by a uh, past guest, Greg Schleppenbach. Greg is the Associate Director of the Secretariat of Pro-Life Activities of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. A lot of really exciting uh, pro-life news that I want to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you, Chris. Great to be with you. Great to be virtually back in the heartland where uh, where I lived most of my life. Yeah, and for listeners who maybe didn't catch the last episode you were on, we probably talked about this a little bit, but you, you're a Cornhusker. I'm a Cornhusker, native Nebraskan, born and raised, lived there my whole life until five years ago when I moved out to the swamp. Well, um, we are glad to have representation out in that swamp. You know, it's, um, it, it gives me a, kind of a, a warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that um, we've got some good Midwesterners out there holding down the fort. But we've got a lot of news we want to talk about today. You know, there's been um, just a number of things that have kind of jumped out at people. We're going to get um, in the middle of our conversation, we really want to touch on this Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case at the Supreme Court is um is going to take up in its next term before we get there and a number of other things want to start with greg the hyde amendment um kind of being under threat i know the your office the secretary for pro-life activities has got a big push going on first week of june um just encouraging people to reach out we need massive massive numbers of American Catholics to reach out to Congress and tell them, save Hyde, we need it. So what's the what's going on here? What is Hyde? What's happening with it? And what do we need? Yeah, Hyde is uh, an, an amendment that's been in place for um, uh, about 45 years. And this, this was so shortly after Roe v. Wade um, legalized abortion throughout the country, there was then I kind of a focus on, and, and initially there was federal funding for abortion, and the, the government was funding several hundred thousand abortions a year before the Hyde Amendment, and ultimately the Hyde Amendment was challenged in court and upheld by the Supreme Court. Um, and the court basically said, you know, there, even if there is a so-called right to abortion, there nobody has a right to, to taxpayer funding to get an abortion. So it's been in place for a long time. It's, you know, by many estimates, it's saved as many as uh, two and a half million lives. Um, but essentially what it says is it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a provision that has to be, it's a part of a annual appropriations bill. So it's a quote unquote rider or policy that's included in the annual labor, health and human services and education um, uh, appropriations bills. So it has to be renewed every year. It's not a matter, it's not a, uh, it's not in permanent law, but it has been renewed every year for 45 years. And, and it, it is widely supported. It's bipartisan. It's been introduced and supported by Congresses and White Houses of both parties. Um, you know, if ever there was an area of, of consensus on abortion, it's been around the Hyde Amendment uh, for the last 45 years. 
that uh, regard. And if you look at public opinion polling, it shows the same thing that um, you know large numbers of even people who identify as uh, pro pro choice on abortion support the Hyde Amendment. Uh, Democrats, by you know, support Hyde Amendment. Uh, Republicans, independents. Um, again, there's general consensus in public opinion and in policy that uh, this is one uh, area where there's um, agreement that, that there people should not be forced to use their taxpayer their tax dollars to pay for abortions. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, well, and I should mention that in addition to Hyde, there's there are a number of other policies that have sort of spun off of Hyde in various other uh, appropriation bills. The Helms Amendment, for example, does something similar on the international level. So it prohibits uh, U.S. money from uh, being used to pay for abortions overseas. Uh, that has even higher public opinion support. Yep. And there's a number of other provisions, uh, Hyde-like provisions in other areas of, of uh, federal law. So again, um, living out this general principle that that uh, nobody should be forced to use their pay, use their tax dollars to pay for abortion. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, our, our current president, uh, President Joe Biden, you know, long, long career in the United States Senate, and it's um, if my memory serves, he has a long history of support for Hyde Amendment. Also, isn't that right? Very long history. In fact, uh, until he ran for president, uh, he, he, you know, throughout his entire career, he supported the Hyde Amendment. And that, that actually brings us to why this is such a big issue now, because we've, we've never seen a more direct frontal assault on the Hyde Amendment than we're seeing right now. Um, uh, Democratic leaders in Congress have been very clear about um, their, their opposition to the Hyde Amendment and their desire to repeal it. Uh, the chair of the Appropriations House Appropriations Committee has made it clear she will not include it in this year's uh, appropriations bill. Um, the, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has indicated she would support that. Uh, so it, it, it's just being attacked at a level we've never seen before. And with the fact that the people who are in power currently in Congress uh, oppose it, 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 we are facing, it, it is facing the biggest threat we've seen. And that's why we are trying to mobilize uh, a massive number of our grassroots to speak out to Congress and to the White House and to say, we support Hyde, don't touch Hyde. So, so what can people do? I mean, voices matter and especially collective action, you know, voices speaking together matters a lot. What can folks do if they want to exercise their voice on this issue? Yeah, the very simplest thing they can do, we've tried to make this very, very simple, is to go to notaxpayerabortion.com. That's notaxpayerabortion.com and sign the petition there. It's very simple. Put your name and your email address and you're added to the petition. We will share that with members of Congress. Those who sign the petition get a, a response asking them to take another step to actually send a message to Congress. Um, and so that, that make, again, gives them a very simple way to communicate with their representatives, with their representative and their senators, uh, to let them know that uh, we support Hyde and that they should oppose any effort to repeal Hyde or related um, policies. So we try to make it very simple. And, and again, that, that website for folks, it's notaxpayerabortion.com. You can just go to that website. It really only takes, you know, 10, 20 seconds. And um, add, add your name to the petition. We really need to have massive numbers of people just saying that this isn't okay. You know, this has been longstanding in American law, this, this budget rider, the uh, 
um, the Hyde Amendment. And we wanted to stay there. American people broadly support it. We wanted to stay there. So no taxpayerabortion.com. So transitioning, Greg, um, to a topic that I've talked about on the program, I think a number of times, probably most recently, trying to think back to who it was, Mary Rice Hassan was on maybe most recently, a number of uh, months ago. We talked about the Equality Act, but I wanted to maybe just take a couple of minutes and talk about the Equality Act and what it means for the pro-life movement. And just a brief refresher for our listeners is the Equality Act is, um, you know, we don't get to pick the names, the sponsors of the bill pick the names. So it's like really inaptly named, but it's it's a so-called civil rights uh, bill that is fundamentally attacking and undermining and destroying um, a a natural conception of the human person in law. Um, Man, uh, marriage being founded upon a man and woman and their fruitful love. And even just the fundamental um, biological and metaphysical nature of what it is to be a man or to be a woman. Um, You know, really, really dangerous, completely unprecedented. Um, but what, my question for you, Greg, is what does this law mean for the pro-life movement? Because I understand it may have some implications uh, for pro-lifers. It does. And, and that concern lies in the fact that the Equality Act would prohibit discrimination based on sex. And it, def- and it then defines that term to include pregnancy, childbirth, or a related medical condition. Mm. Um, and it also states that that pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions shall not receive less favorable treatment uh, than other physical uh, conditions. So where that becomes problematic is that um, uh, for years it's been like an accepted predicate in uh, uh, federal bill drafting that laws forbidding discrimination based on sex must have abortion-neutral language to blunt any inference that non-discrimination requires the provision of uh, provision or coverage of abortion. Uh, the titles, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 64, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 72 are illustrative. And both of these uh, titles forbid discrimination based on sex, and both titles have abortion-neutral amendments to mitigate or foreclose the claim that this prohibition requires a covered entity to provide or cover abortion. So the, the fact that the Equality Act does not have a, an abortion neutral amendment like these other civil rights laws, um, you know, makes it pretty clear that there's an, there's an intent here to, to require the provision of abortion. Or otherwise, it would have, it would have clearly um, uh, indicated that. So, um, th- so the, the, the problem here is that the or, or related um, medical conditions could include abortion. And so by that broad definition and no specific prohibition on, on abortion being included in that, it could require the federal, federal and state governments themselves because they are providers of health care could be required to provide abortions. Um, and and in, in, in terms of the Hyde Amendment and other prohibitions on federal funding of abortion, well, if if on one hand uh, it mandates that recipients of this Equality Act mandates that recipients of federal funds provide abortions, um, it seems very likely that on the other hand it, it, it's not going to prohibit the use of such funds for abortion. In fact, it's going to probably require it. Yeah. So yeah. it could be argued that 
these newly enacted provisions on, of the Equality Act would repeal by implication previously enacted legislation that forbids use of taxpayer funds for abortion like the Hyde Amendment. You know, so, so the bottom line is um, a healthcare provider would be in potentially in vet, uh, violation of federal law if they refuse to provide an abortion. Correct. Forcing doctors to provide abortions. The other thing that I think is, is really important to note, um, especially here in South Dakota, Catholic healthcare is big. We've got a, a Vera, just a great, great Catholic healthcare system. And um, the Equality Act strips protections of what's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So, you know, it, it's kind of, um, one would hope that the federal government isn't um, attempting to force even Catholic uh, healthcare to do this, but on the plain, plain face of the law itself, it's like, that's really what it seems like it's attempting to do. Is that a, is that a correct read? It is a correct read. It explicitly uh, excludes the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So it's, it's clearly meant to uh, ensure that even religious entities have to comply with this. And, and so this is from the perspective of the of the conference, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, um, while there is this uh, abortion concern with the bill, the biggest concerns are related to religious liberty um, and, and also our, our defensive marriage offices. And so they have really been taking the lead in their opposition to the Equality Act um, because exactly of, of the, the concerns about religious liberty and promoting uh, um, uh, lifestyles uh, that are contrary to the nature of the human person. Well, and just so South Dakotans tuning in right now know, um, H, the Equality Act has kind of made it through the House. It's it's um, in the Senate. I don't know when it's coming up for a vote. Maybe June. I guess I'm not sure, but I I do know that Senator Rounds and Senator Thune um, are committed to opposing it. So you know, folks that really want to reach out with a word of encouragement, um, I, I think that's a great thing to do. To just send a quick email to to the senators' offices saying thank you, thank you, thank you for recognizing the dangers um, that are inherent in this law. Thank you for standing up for, for what's right. So encourage our, our good senators. Um, maybe that's a, a good point in which we can transition from the Equality Act to the big, big news in kind of the pro-life movement last month. You know, there's this case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization that uh, the United States Supreme Court has announced that they're going to take up this case. It's the first uh, abortion-related case that they've taken up in quite a while. You know, the, they've received some criticism for refusing to take uh, some other cases in, um, in, in recent memory, but they're taking this one. So what, is, what does this mean for the pro-life movement, Greg? What, is, what do we need to know about this case and what can we expect? It is a big case. I, I mean, it, it's it's the biggest case in 30 years since the the, the, the Casey Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision in, in 92. So um, it's 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 particularly um, important and big because the, of the fundamental question that they have taken up with this case. So the case is, out of, as you said, out of Mississippi, it's a, it's a law that they passed there that would ban abortions after 15 weeks um, uh, gestation. Uh, with a couple of exceptions for severe fetal abnormality and medical emergencies. That's the tightly defined definition of medical emergency that would include essentially the physical life of the mother. Um, it was, of course, struck down um, by the district court and the appellate court because it is in conflict with, with Roe and Casey. 
Um, so um, the, it was appealed to the Supreme Court. They were asked to take the case. Um, there were there were a few different questions placed before um, the court, and they took one of the, the questions. And the question that they took really does strike at uh, you know really the heart of of Casey, or at least of one of the main provisions of Casey. And, and the question that they will be discussing and answering is whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. So under Casey, anything prior to viability is, you know, that, that, that creates an undue burden to a woman getting an abortion has been struck down under, under that rubric. Um, so this is, is going to, one way or another, create some kind of a new standard. Um, you know, we, we fully expect that that we will get something good out of this case from the Supreme Court. Um, we don't anticipate it will be a total, complete overturning of Roe and Casey, although anything's possible. But at the very least, we expect that they will um, answer that question, are all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions unconstitutional in, in the negative, that they are not. Um, what new standard they create for local courts to determine whether uh, a pre-viability pre prohibition um, passes constitutional muster or not remains to be seen. And we'll hear that undoubtedly from this court. They're going to have to address that question um, as well in this, in this case. Well, and one thing you mentioned that I think is maybe important to highlight because there's I think um, some of this stuff gets a little technical. You know, there's all this jurisprudence and the law, and it, it, it can even get a bit technical. So I think when people see that, oh, the Supreme Court's taken up a, a pro-life case, um, an abortion case, we just think that, oh, you know, Roe and Casey are going away. But as you just mentioned a minute ago, uh, some of the, um, the thinkers, the bright legal minds in the pro-life movement, they – as you say, anything could happen, but some of the brighter legal minds in the pro-life movement are expecting that Roe and Casey will be walked back with more of a one-two punch rather than, you know, one fell swoop. Correct. Yeah, I think that, the, the, as you said, the, the legal pro-life legal minds fully expect that that's more likely what they would do. Is, is do it incrementally. And this would be the first increment. And this, in, in fact, is, you know, I think the strategy that many pro-life legal experts had been, um, you know, pursuing was the first step in dismantling Roe and Casey is to is to get rid of the viability standard. So allow for pre-viability restrictions or protections uh, for unborn babies. Um, you know, and then the next step being, you know, go to the heart of Roe and Casey and, and ultimately overturn them all so that states can, can freely um, uh, pass protective legislation that protects all human life uh, from, from the beginning. So um, that's really what we kind of expect. I mean, we, you know, certainly this current court uh, with ostensibly six votes that would be at least receptive to um, scaling back uh, row, if not overturning it, should, you know, hopefully move us in the right direction. Now, you know, last year we had the June medical case. Uh, now, we didn't have Amy Coney Barrett on the court then, um, but I think a lot of people going to your previous point, a lot of people expected we had five votes yeah. to strike down Roe and we were going to see Roe struck down in the June case. And not only did we not see Roe struck down, we saw them, you know, invalidate the, the um, Louisiana law um, with Roberts's um, uh, vote. 
but you know, we'll, we'll see. Roberts, you know, did have something good in that decision, in that he he kind of repudiated the previous whole woman's health um, standard that the Supreme Court had set up that was being used to go after other pro-life laws. But there's still so much. Uh, lack of clarity about what the standard is on abortion jurisprudence that courts really need to address that that confusion. And um, for listeners that want to know more about that June medical case, you can go back in our archives. We had uh, Professor Teresa Collette on last year explaining that Roberts decision. And, um, you know, it's kind of an exciting thing, if um, especially if, if Roberts uh, doesn't join the majority, we'll probably have a Justice Thomas decision, which you know, could be a, a bit more <laughs> explosive, but um, I guess some of the commentary I've read is suggesting that, that Roberts is likely to join the majority so that he can write or assign the opinion himself. But um, we don't we don't necessarily know, but maybe I think the best thing to bear in mind right now is let's temper our expectations a little bit. Um, we're likely to get a win, but it, it, it might not necessarily be a grand slam win um, all, all at once, so. Having I and that's important, you know, tempering expectations is very important. Um, and I'm going to uh, violate that right now with my own prediction, not necessarily this case, but, you know, at some point, um, I, I predict that Amy Coney Barrett, the devout Catholic mother of eight, is going to write the opinion, ultimately, that overturns Roe, an opinion that was written by um, also a Catholic. I'm getting goosebumps right now. I'm, uh, yeah, that's true. It is. It that's was written by a Catholic. So it's that's the way God works, right? That's the way the Blessed Mother works. I'm Holy Spirit. Yeah, that that would just be great. So, um, uh, more to follow on on developments in this case in uh, in the months ahead. Okay, uh, we have about six minutes left, Greg. And I uh, want to spend just a couple minutes here, a national perspective on state action during kind of our 2020, 2021 legislative cycles in the states. I know USCCB, you guys don't do state level legislation. That's for the state Catholic conferences. But you've got like this bird's eye view. And I'm just kind of curious, what can you say, you know, the view from on high as you're watching all this pro-life activity in the various states? What, uh, what do we need to know? Well, I, I think what um, what is evident uh, is is the massive increase in the numbers of, of pro-life bills that have been introduced in state legislatures in this this uh, legislative year. So in 2021, over 500 bills, pro-life bills have been introduced in, in states around the country. And, um, you know, that that comes after, you know, you know, previous years where, you know, two to three hundred bills were introduced. So we're seeing a massive increase in the number of bills. Um, And I I think it's good for a number of reasons, even if many of these bills for now get struck down at the lower court level, um, it does send a message and that message is, is, is noticed. There's, I don't think there's any question by even the Supreme court, that this is an indication that uh, Roe v. Wade is not settled law. law. Um, That ought to be evident to any observer of this issue over the last, you know, uh, almost 50 years. Um, and so I, I think what this demonstrates is that it's not a settled issue and, and, and people are, um, the, uh, are making their views known through legislation. And, I, and it's important for this legislation to continue to put that pressure, as we mentioned earlier, this kind of two-step process um, of, of getting a case up to the Supreme Court, which we now have, that presumably will hopefully um, transcend the viability standard 
And then, you know, what's the next piece of legislation, assuming that happens, um, what's the next piece of legislation that, that ultimately is, um, is a vehicle for driving a stake into the heart of Roe and Casey remains to be seen. But, you know, that's why it all comes from the states. So uh, state legislation in various um, uh, appellate court, circuit courts is important. Um, oftentimes it's, it's almost necessary for there to be a split amongst the appellate courts on a on a law before the Supreme Court will take it, which is another extraordinary thing about the court, Supreme Court taking um, the Dobbs case because there was not a, a, a circuit split on this 15 week ban and still the court took it. So um, that's a pretty good sign that we may see something positive out of this, um, out of this case. Well, and, and to your point, too, about these these bills, they're so-called design, designed to fail. They're not passed because they're necessarily going to go into operation. They're passed many times in direct attack on this bad press. And here in South Dakota, um, folks will remember that we passed a, a Down syndrome um, diagnosis abortion ban. Um, it was sponsored by our governor, and it passed with uh, unanimous or near unanimous support, both chambers, bipartisan. Um, so it's it's great to see, and it, I don't remember offhand how many pro-life bills we had, but it was a number, and it um, Catholic Conference involved in, in many of them. But it, it did seem like even here, without knowing that number 500 nationwide, it seemed like, okay, we're, we're – we're almost like um, there's not a fever pitch, but it, it felt like there was more energy and, and more, more investment. In, and, I, and to me, I think that just comes down to people are not giving up on the, the moral gravity of this issue, um, especially in places like, like South Dakota and so many of the other states in which, um, you know, state legislatures have, have not let this one go. All right, um, Greg, we've got two minutes left here. Our last topic, and maybe, I don't know if we can do this quickly, but um, is there anything more that we could add? You know, this, this program has covered the COVID-19 vaccines in the past and, and what could be said about those with uh, the remote material cooperation with evil uh, and so on and so forth. Any, any tidbits or, or little updates along those uh, lines in our last minute and a half here? Yeah, well, we've tried to uh, provide some good resources to Catholics um, to help guide them on the moral decision making about these different vaccines. And we've we've issued a couple of statements uh, between the office of you know, the committee on pro-life activities and the doctrine committee to help guide people and lay out the principles for making these decisions. Um, you know, there's a lot of moral questions related to vaccines, not just their connection to um, abortion-derived cell lines, but that's our, been our main focus is to provide some guidance on that front. And so we've we've um, created a, a, a page on our website, usccb.org, um, um, and if you go to the pro-life website and, and biomedical research, you'll see a whole section of, of resources there on uh, vaccines, on our fact sheets. We've got a, a Q&A that answers all the basic questions um, related to the, the moral concerns of these vaccines. Well, Greg, this has been a, just a great conversation. I'm so grateful that you took the time and, uh, and thanks for joining me on the show. It's always my pleasure, Chris. God bless you and your work and God bless all the great people in South Dakota. 
Thank you. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. You've been listening to a conversation with Greg Schleppenbach, the Associate Director for the Secretariat for Life Activities at the USCCB. If you like this conversation or have other topic ideas, don't hesitate to reach out. sdcatholicconference.org. Click contact us, drop us a line. Until next time, live well. Live well.